And I just want to draw out, as I said, for 15 minutes, just three themes that I think jump, jump out to us and can act as a source of just encouragement and refreshment to us. And those are the themes of authority, faith, and grace that you see in this text. Um, the, what I read, we began at the end of chapter 7, ended at the beginning of chapter 9, and we read a, a, a kind of a distinct section of Matthew's Gospel. And we know it's a distinct section because of the way those two things are, are bookended. They're bookended at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7 by the crowds being astonished at Jesus' teaching because they said he was teaching as one who had authority and not as the scribes teach. And then at the end, with the uh, healing of the paralyzed man, again, the same statement comes up that they were amazed that God had given such authority to men. So one of the overarching reasons for Matthew including these stories in the way that he has done and categorizing the way that he has done is because of that theme, authority. He's wanting to communicate something about the authority of Jesus. We see in, the, in chapter 8 that Jesus has authority. He has authority, rules over sickness, rules over creation, and he rules over evil. Authority is really the ability to be able to impose boundaries, to be able to say this far and no further to a thing. Um, when I say to my dog, come, and it comes, I have authority. When I say to my kids, come, and they don't come, we realize I have no authority there. And what I find interesting is that it's, it's fair enough to talk about the fact that Jesus' miracles reveal his authority. What I find interesting is the fact that they said the same thing after his teaching, that his teaching revealed something of Jesus' authority. How is that so? Well, in Jesus' day, and, and in ours really, teachers were known to quote other authorities as a means of validating themselves. If you like reading non-fiction books, you know that there are certain go-to intellectuals that an author has to quote for you to go, oh, they, they know their stuff, or they have authority. They quote this author and that author as a way of validating their authority. What makes Jesus' teaching, however, stunning and so remarkably different from anything else on the shelf, really, is that Jesus' source of authority is not that rabbi or not that intellectual. His, his source of authority is himself. He points people to him. I, me, myself. You have heard it said, he says often, in the Old Testament, the sacred scriptures of God. You've heard it said there, but I say to you. In other words, I have authority over them. In verse 7.22, he even says, On that day, at the final judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Many will say to me, and he says, and I will say to them, I, depart from me, I never knew you. Jesus' authority points to his identity. His authority flows from his identity. The reason he can say and do as he does in the Sermon on the Mount, in the, in the healing miracles, is because of who he is. And so still it reminds us that the most important question that every human being must reckon with is the question, who is Jesus? This man whose authority stands for the past 2,000 years has shaped Western history in the way that it has, such that when we look at the terrible news and what's going on in Afghanistan, what we're seeing is a clash of civilizations, ones that have been shaped by the authority of Jesus for 2,000 years and one that hasn't. And the inability to understand one another with different value systems comes from their ultimately different authority sources. Jesus' identity, as we were singing earlier, is that he is the ultimate prophet, priest, and king that the Old Testament told us to prepare for and get ready for. He's a king. 
in that he rules and he has authority and he reigns with wisdom in the things that he does and says. We see this in Matthew 8, the way that he commands the creation and the way that he casts out demons just with a word. When he goes to the region of Gedarenes, Jesus says nothing except that one little word, go. That's it. His authority is so complete that he needn't say anything other than go. And uh, yeah, so he's, and he rules with wisdom. He's a priest. He mediates between people. He sympathizes. He purifies people. As in the story, he tenderly holds his mother-in-law's, or Simon Peter's mother-in-law's hand. And he takes on to himself, we read, and they're quoting from Isaiah's um, book in the Old Testament, takes on to himself our infirmities and our diseases. And he's a prophet. He speaks truth. He calls people to God's standard and pursues justice. When two would-be disciples come to him, he calls them to a complete obedience and devotion to him that they weren't ready for. He's a prophet who declares the way of God rightly. He's a prophet, he's a priest, he's a king. And in fact, those three things, statements of authority and identity, can be seen most clearly in the calming of the storm moment, where the disciples find themselves asking, who is this? You know, they've seen his authority and they go, who is this? His identity. He's a king in that his authority terrifies the disciples, that his authority is absolute. He's a prophet. He's a prophet in this moment in that he rebukes the disciples for their weak faith. Jesus is not impressed with their small faith. As one commentator I read says, weak faith doesn't flatter Jesus. He calls it out. If you knew who I was, you wouldn't have that kind of faith. And he's a priest, however. He's not flattered by their faith, but he doesn't reject their faith either. He saves them. He has compassion for them. Again, another writer says, Jesus takes us as we come, and if we come with hardly any faith at all, he cannot pretend that he is flattered, but he does go immediately to work. So this is a statement, and this chapter is about Jesus' authority, firstly. But we also see not just authority, but we see comment and teaching on faith. And this is a quick point, but I think it's important. Because there is a form of Christian teaching that emphasizes the need for us to have strong faith, full faith, before God will act. There's a teaching that suggests that any sickness or any tragedy we encounter or we live with is because we lack faith. And whilst faith is important and is worthy of Jesus... It can be cruel and heavy and joy-killing to place our emphasis or our focus on faith as opposed to Jesus. There's a form of Christian teaching like that that can suck the life out of our Christianity. And it turns sons and daughters into slaves to this thing called faith that we're constantly hammered by. Or it can make us feel like failures before a father constantly. And you see this in chapter 8. If we were to go through the stories and grade each of the people's faith levels, well, it starts with the leper who comes to Jesus, and he's got impressive faith. We'd give him an A, good faith. Uh, but then we come to the faith of the centurion. Again, impressive faith. We can't give him an A because we've already given someone an A, so we'll give him a B plus. He gets a B plus for good faith because he recognizes Jesus' authority. But then we come to Jesus, uh, Simon Peter's mother-in-law. She doesn't have any faith. She's asleep at the time. He just touches her. We'll give her a, a C for faith. But then we come to um, the, the calming of the storm. What do we get here? 
Jesus' disciples panicking in the face of the waves. They get a D. It's not impressive faith. And then we come to the two demonized men in the region of the Gadarenes. They, not only do they not have faith, they have the opposite of faith in Jesus. They are opposed to Jesus. We'd give them an F, perhaps. So you see people with different levels and measures of faith. Or if we're not familiar with the A to E system for the new kids, we'd go for 9, 9, 4, 3, and 1, which makes no sense to me. And at this point, I want to read something that um, Dale Brunner says in his amazing book on Matthew's Gospel, which I've been enjoying for the past year. This is, this is Matthew 1 to 12. I mean, all of that on just the first 12 chapters, and I've nearly finished it. I can't wait for the next installment of Brunner's commentary. But he says these beautiful things about Jesus and faith in response to this moment. He says, It is not true that the measure of faith determines the measure of help. In this gospel, though Jesus praises great faith, he never requires it before he helps. I doubt theologians do this, but he should just drop the mic and walk away at that stage. There we go. But I want you to listen to this. This is a lengthy quote, but I think this is worth us hearing, particularly in light of what I said. It has been one of Protestantism's temptations to turn faith into a meritorious, that means merit-earning work, meritorious work, whose quality or quantity God rewards. Justification by faith has sometimes been turned into justification on the basis of faith. Only absolute surrender, we are told, gets absolute help. Only total commitment receives total power. Only an empty vessel can be filled. But these mystic Gnostic adjectives, all of which focus on us and on the quality of our inner doings or undoings, are so many salvations by works and are to be rejected. And the focus, again, is to be placed on Jesus. And then listen to this last bit. We used to criticize old Catholics and old Catholicism for making salvation a matter of exterior works, rosaries, indulgences, novenas, satisfactions, pilgrimages, confessions, and the like. But Protestant works can be even more excruciating because they have to be performed within, where it is harder to tell how we are doing. Complete emptying, yielding, abandoning, and all other completes, fulls, totals, and absolutes can be cruel when imposed by uncompassionate teachers on eager candidates. Jesus loves trust in him. He praises it and he helps it, but he does not tyrannically demand it of us in large, not to mention entire, measures before he helps us. These stories teach us that Jesus helps because he wants to help. Jesus himself coaxes a more entire devotion from us in almost every encounter with him. This is the nature of friendship. But entirety is the fruit of friendship, not friendship's requirement. Fully giving yourself to Jesus is the fruit of Jesus giving himself to you. It is not Jesus' requirement of you before he gives himself to you. Now, I don't, I don't know how easy it was to follow along because it's a large quote. I appreciate you were just hearing it. But I find that deeply helpful and very important for us. A form of teaching that emphasizes our faith is not only potentially borderline unbiblical, it is cruel. But this is a passage about then authority, faith, and lastly, grace. No one in the stories has anything to offer. 
all of them are undeserving and unable to save themselves. There's the leper, who is an outcast by society's terms, an unclean, rejected by people. And so, people said, rejected by God, push them away. There is the Roman centurion, a pagan, surely God's enemies. This, this man invaded the people of God and slaughtered them, or his, his countrymen did. He's an enemy occupier. And then there's Peter's mother-in-law. I mean, enough said. Undeserving mother-in-law that she might be. Then <laughs> we see the demon-possessed man, trapped and oppressed. His life was essentially over, alienated from his community. And then lastly, we came across the man lying on the bed, the paralyzed man lying on the bed. We're told had no faith again. But what I love in that moment Again, as an example, almost as the embodiment of the grace that Jesus shows to all those people, the leper, the Roman, the mother-in-law, the demon-possessed, and now to this man, Jesus says this. This is beautiful. Where is it? Oh, yeah, that's it. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, ready, this is beautiful, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus is tender enough that he says to the leper, I'm willing. He has enough authority and, and is impressed enough by faith that he says to the Roman centurion, I'll say the word and it will be done. He tenderly touches Simon Peter's mother-in-law's hand and just holds her hand and heals her. And here he says to the paralyzed man, take heart, your sins are forgiven. Sickness, storms, and evil will keep coming. It's the world we live in. The pandemic may end, but sickness won't. Fear won't. The inroads that fear has made into our society won't go. They will keep coming. But the most significant thing, the most significant problem that we have isn't ultimately the pandemic or the fear or the sickness the most significant problem we have is the problem of sin jesus knows that that's what he diagnoses here with this man take heart son your sins are forgiven to which his friends may have thought we brought you here we brought him here to be healed but jesus you see where we want a genie to grant whatever wish we have get me that job give me that spouse heal this problem, sort this out. Where we want a genie, God is a father who knows. He knows what we really need, ultimately, is to have our sins forgiven. Sin is the force within you that corrupts you. It is the force outside of you that pollutes your relationships, and it is the barrier beyond you that cuts you off from the heavens, makes God a distant deity. And in every example we've seen in Matthew 8, including this one, we see needy, desperate, helpless people coming. People who are corrupted by sin, whose relationships are polluted by sin, who've been cut off by God because of sin. They come to Jesus, desperate and needy sinners, wicked though they are. And every single one of them could hear him say the same thing that he said to this young man here. Son, daughter, friend. Take heart. Your corruption is forgiven. Your pollution is cleansed. And the barrier between you and God is removed. Your sins 
are forgiven. And he can do that because he has all authority because of his faith, because of who he is, and because of his great grace. And because of those things, our role in life is not to muster great faith. It's not to be sinless and spotless on our own. Our role in life is to look on Jesus and live. He is the source of our life. He is our joy. He's our treasure. And he is the source of our ultimate refreshment and satisfaction, not success. In fact, earlier on as we were praying, someone had a prophetic word that they felt there were people coming who were battling with feelings of insignificance, as though you don't matter to the world. Jesus would tell you that you're signif- you are significant, but your significance doesn't come because you matter to the world. Do you know how big the universe is? Do you think we matter one dot to the universe in the grand scheme of human history? What value is your life? How significant can you be? How hard must you work to attain a measure of significance? No, your significance comes not because you can be productive, not because you are great and healthy and powerful and wise and important. Your significance and mine comes from this. He loves you. That's it. He loves you. And because he loves you and knows your name, you matter a great deal. That's where your significance comes from. Everything else is a lie and needs to be resisted and rejected. Let's pray.